Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to the enormous news that Roman Abramovich has put Chelsea up for sale. Who will be taking over and when? What does it mean for the club's fans? And what legacy does he leave in English football? We'll also look ahead to the Manchester derby. How big is it for Manchester City? And what reaction will we see from the Manchester United players as rumours come out of more criticisms for their captain, Harry Maguire? We'll also discuss the most amazing, incredible and unique results in the history of the Football League. This is The Game. Hello again, welcome to the game podcast. I am Hugh Wisencroft alongside Jonathan Northcroft and Thomas Roddy. And listen, it has been a huge, huge week for Chelsea in particular. The big news is the club is now up for sale. Roman Abramovich will be leaving after 19 years at the helm. Joining us to discuss this on the game podcast is the Times Chief Sports Correspondent Matt Lawton. Uh, Matt, this is this is huge news, isn't it? It is. The fact that he's selling isn't uh, such a surprise. It's it's felt like it's been coming for a few days. We've speculated as much over the last couple of days, but the the, the more surprising aspect of of the announcement that came just after six o'clock was the fact that um, he does not want any of his money back. He's owed more than £1.5 billion in loans and he has said very clearly in the statement that he will not ask for that money to be repaid. Now, I sought clarification on that from Chelsea and they are saying that if we assume that the value is £3 and that is what they value the club at, then it will be £3 minus the 58 million that they owe to other trade creditors minus the costs of the actual transaction you know the costs that will be charged by the lawyers by the merchant bank in new york the rain group that have that have been instructed to find a buyer once you take their costs away which may run into tens of millions but once you take those those costs away you are still looking at the best part of three billion pounds going into this foundation. So it's, look, there will be a lot of skepticism about the fact that Abramovich remains, you know, he's still, he's still not going to be short of money. He's, he's, you know, I'm sure there will be jokes that poor bloke is now down to his last eight billion or whatever it will be, but it, it remains, in the context of football business, Hugh, it remains an amazing story. In the statement, Abramovich said, I've always taken decisions with the club's best interests at heart. In the current situation, he said, "I," and he doesn't really allude to what that is, he says, I have therefore taken the decision to sell the club, as I believe this is in the best interest of the club, the fans, the employees, as well as the club sponsors and partners. The sale of the club will not be fast-tracked, but will follow due process. I will not be asking for any loans to be repaid. And as you just mentioned, I've instructed my team to set up a charitable foundation where all net proceeds from the sale will be donated. The foundation will be for the benefit of all victims of the war in Ukraine. That's a change of tone from Abramovich compared to the weekend when he changed uh, stewardship of the club over to Mm, the the trustees by admitting there was a war in Ukraine. And that, I think, was the big change in tone. But many people will see this, and this is, again, aside from the sale of the club, and this is maybe more political, but many people will see this as Abramovich getting out of town, basically selling up his properties and his businesses in the UK before those assets are frozen. Not necessarily an admission of anything, but an indication of what may come down the track for Roman Abramovich. What sort of legacy 
does he leave at Chelsea? Even if they find somebody who then drives the club into the ground, then it wouldn't be the first time we've seen it happen at an English football club. It's been a hell of a ride for 19 years, hasn't it? They've won two Champions League titles. They've won five Premier League titles. In terms of legacy, it probably does depend to some extent on who he hands over to. But there's also the legacy, the the, the more negative legacy of the impact he had on English football in in that he, he changed the landscape of English football, didn't he? I, I still remember the night that that story broke because I was in, as were a number of reporters, I was in Madrid. Beckham was due to be unveiled as, at Real Madrid the next day. and At least I think it was the next day or it happened that day. I was in Madrid for Beckham's unveiling. This story suddenly broke and it was completely out of the blue. No one saw it coming, which is normally what does happen with takeovers. I'm always sceptical of the people that say they want to buy a football club because the ones that actually do buy it, you never, you never see it coming. Anyway, he, 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 he changed the game. And in the view of many, not for the better because he took it to a whole new level of, of spending. David Dean, the, the former Arsenal director, happened to run into him on Monday night at a function, but he famously talked about the fact that Abramovich had parked his Russian tanks on their lawns and and, and was firing 50-pound notes at them. It, it, it was He was the first of the super-rich owners and, and, and really sort of paved the way for what we've seen at Manchester City, we're now seeing at Newcastle, a different level of spending and, in the eyes of many, an unhealthy level of spending. No, I tend to agree. I mean, amazing to see that he's loaned the club more than a billion and a half pounds. Then to see that written off is incredible in itself. The first question that came to my mind is, how on earth are we allowing football clubs to go a billion and a half pounds in debt and be loaned that by their owners? Who I know, I think it was an 18-month warning was... um, I think it had to be addressed in that loan. So he had to tell the club 18 months before he needed that to be paid back, if indeed that was going to happen, which clearly now it isn't. But it, it does raise big questions over financial fair play, just the rules that we have around ownership in football, I think. Those questions, of course, were, were already there before this happened. But definitely you're right in saying he did change the landscape in that. This sort of thing is now more commonplace than it was when he took over the club, of course. Yeah, look, just look at Manchester United. The fact of the matter is, Manchester United, when it was initially successful under Alex Ferguson, was doing that as a public limited company that only spent what it had. You know, it was run quite brilliantly as a business. You know, Sir Roland Smith at the helm and was run, you know, as chair of the of the PLC, run by Martin Edwards and David Gill with Fergie as the manager. And yes, they were big spenders. Yes, they would compete for the for the big signings. Didn't always get them. Um, you know, Alan Shearer, for instance, didn't choose to go there. He went to Newcastle, where Sir John Hall was spending big. But they were run as a proper business. And then the Glazers eventually buy them. And they've put the whole thing into debt, essentially. It's clearly the way businesses are structured in many of these cases and can be potentially problematic. Now, in this case, it probably isn't going to be problematic because he has chosen to write off that debt. So I'm sure in the eyes of Chelsea fans, and when we go back to the question of legacy, the Chelsea fans have been very good for 19 years at ignoring the potential downsides of of being owned by a Russian oligarch. They've been very good at ignoring that. <laughs> um, and um, and that I'm sure he's going to, in their eyes, be, forever be a legendary figure, uh, particularly because of this final gesture, if you like. It's funny though, Matt, isn't it? Because of course they are, they are allegations. Nothing is proven, if you like. Of course, we know that Roman Abramovich has appeared on the list of several countries and states, you know, allegedly linked to to Vladimir Putin. But again, you know, something that startled me immediately, how many people write off a billion and a half pounds in debt? You know, uh, for me, it was like, where else will Roman Abramovich save money if you like, you know, 
by being able to offload Chelsea and maybe other assets that he has in the United Kingdom, you know, this week in the next seven days or so, how much of his other wealth will he be able to hold on to because he hasn't yet been sanctioned by the UK, which I guess is is not a question for, for you to answer. But um, yeah, because we don't actually know where all his money is, do we? So like the, the fact of the matter is he's not going to be driving down the King's Road in a clapped out old mini, is he? So, no. <laughs> so he, he, he's, he's, got, he's got plenty of money left, I'm quite sure. But it, it's, it's, you know, I assume he has money in Israel. He has money obviously tied up in his, his yacht. As I say, it's beyond my, my knowledge and comprehension exactly how these people, I'm pretty sure it's not sitting in HSBC in the current <laughs> account. So I don't know, I don't know what they do with it, but, um, um, he's, uh, yeah, he, he has to get out of the UK. That's clear. He's got a couple of hundred million pounds worth of properties in London as well, which, uh, Chris Bryant, the Labour MP, announced yesterday he was looking to sell. That was what really triggered this. It seemed inevitable from last week. Um, he, he, he did try, yeah, the initial tactic was to try and simply hand the stewardship to the trustees of the charity. That backfired very quickly because there's all sorts of issues with charity law in this country. The pressure has intensified. The fighting has intensified. The, 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 the deplorable nature of this invasion has just been all the more graphic and disgusting and it's become impossible for him to stick around and 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 here we are and you know one of the interesting things will be of course if the situation in ukraine changes rapidly those sanctions might come on roman abramovich's uk assets before he's able to sell chelsea and then what happens there i mean i can't i can't fathom it and I, again i'm sure these are questions that i should probably be asking a lawyer but, but it would be interesting to see what happens down the line if these sanctions came in before the club was sold which is a bridge we can cross if it does appear i can respond a little bit to that because they are obvious questions that we've been asking i've been speaking to mps today i've been speaking to to, to people in westminster to try and get some kind of clarity on that and you're right. If the UK government decided tomorrow to freeze his assets in the way that we're seeing the EU um, approach this, you know, as the way that the EU have approached uh, Alicia Usmanov, there would be a real problem because you wouldn't be able to sell the club. You, you, you and I would not be able to go to Stamford Bridge this weekend and buy a coffee, Hugh. That would be breaking the law. So the thing is, though, you would essentially be the government, if they were to do that, if they were to impose sanctions that suddenly meant that Chelsea Football Club could not do business, you're basically bankrupting the club. And as one MP put it to me today, the government does not want to suddenly acquire a three billion pound football club. So I think there are, as he's explained to me, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think there are sort of levels of sanctions that can be imposed. But it would make sense to me. I I think there would have been had. Abramovich been looking to profit from this sale, then I think there would be big questions for the government in that it would be saying, well, hang on a minute, we're supposed to be punishing these guys, we're supposed to be making these Russian oligarchs suffer. Um, how can you do that by standing back and letting him make money out of a football club sale? The fact that he isn't doing that possibly makes it easier for the government to impose certain sanctions, but allow this sale to progress. Listen, I totally agree with you. I think every single move here is quite intentional and I think is, is, is done as much as possible from Roman Abramovich's side to make this transition away from the United Kingdom as easy as possible. And, and these MPs, if they were to block, say it is a billion and a half that goes to, uh, as the statement says, the victims of the war in Ukraine, um, how would that look politically? Um, and that is a huge amount of money which could do some good. So, I mean, if there is anything positive to come from this, maybe that would be it. Let's look ahead to that sale, though, finally, Matt. Do we know who might be buying Chelsea for how much, and in, in particular when? Not really, no. You know, obviously there's this um, this billionaire in Switzerland. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure how we pronounce it. I've only, I've written it today, but I actually know what Jörg Wiss is yeah, what I'm going to say. I was about yeah. to suggest it was Wiss. We spoke, um, and, and when I say we, you know, I've written this story today with Martin Ziegler, the chief sports reporter, with, with Ashley Armstrong, who's one of our leading business reporters. And so when I say we, we've spoken to people close to this transaction, and they're fairly dismissive of WIS. 
And it comes back to the point I made that those who make a bit of a noise about wanting to buy something rarely end up being the people that do buy it. Um, the fact of the matter is um, the Rain Group have only just been instructed to search for these bidders and they are only just in the process of sending out NDAs to the people that they will identify as potential you know, people, people that one obviously have the, have the resource but might be in the market for buying a club as attractive as Chelsea. Like, yes, there are issues. There are, there's, there's the, the, the big issue over the, over the future of the stadium. The fact of the matter is it's going to cost an enormous amount of money to rebuild Stamford Bridge. It needs to happen because of the stature of the club. They are the European champions. And it's, it's an old-fashioned stadium, and they are losing money every week compared to some of their rivals by the fact that they've only got, I think, 38,000 seats. But there are all sorts of problems with it because there is a tube station to take into account. So from a sort of engineering perspective, it's a real challenge. And you can just see, you know, crikey, you've only got a built an extension in your house and you, you find water to realise <laughs> you, you watch the sort of costs going up. The builder goes, oh, that's going to... That's going to cost. Well, it's 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 that times millions and tens and hundreds of millions when you're when you're talking about building a new stadium over a tube, over a tube line. So th- there's all sorts of issues with that. But there will presumably be people out there that they are going to target, and 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 I imagine it will be predominantly American and 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 Western European. Do you think Chelsea will stay at the level that they are? Are they firmly entrenched as that higher echelon of of club now, two Champions League titles, the women's team excelling as well? Does it all depend on who comes in? Will, will we maybe see a Chelsea drops back to being a Europa League side in the next 10 years, depending on, or, or even a mid-table side, depending on who takes over? I think that could easily happen because, you know, I was the Manchester correspondent for a number of years and and even as a football correspondent covered a lot of Manchester United. And what has happened there was inconceivable, but it's happened. You know, like uh, bad ownership, even if they've still got lots of money and they can still afford to bring Ronaldo back to the Premier League and they can afford to buy Pogba again. It's bad ownership, you know, Someone in Charles doesn't really know what they're doing, and they keep making bad appointments with managers, and they and 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 make bad signings. They become a club that hasn't, you know, isn't getting a sniff of the Premier League for a few years again, and 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 has, and seems to have little chance of winning another Champions League for the foreseeable future. So yeah, it could easily drop away again. How many clubs have suffered because of bad ownership? So. It's a really big, you know, Abramovich has intimated in his in his statement that, um, you know, he's going to very carefully look at who he hands it over to in the hope that it's it's someone that's going to prove as generous and, 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 and as astute as he has proved. Like the fact of the matter, it, you know, one of the interesting things about the Abramovich reign, the sort of widely held view always in football is, is, is that continuity and, and consistency is king. Well, this bloke's proved that you can change your manager every five seconds and still keep winning, you know. And, he, and he's won, and he's won. He nearly won a European Cup with Avram Grant. He did win one with Roberto Di Matteo. It's it's you know an extraordinary track record. You know he's he's proved trigger happy so many times, but keeps winning, keeps winning. Whether that continues is will entirely be down to who the new owners are, because I think it's very easy to lose. To, to you know, to, to 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 fall off the pace. Look at look at Liverpool. Look at how dominant Liverpool were in the seventies, eighties, into the start of the nineties. How long it took them to get back. That could easily happen to Chelsea. But we shall see over the short term and the long term what the future is for Chelsea. Uh, Matt Lawton, our chief sports correspondent. Thanks for joining us on the game. So, Johnny, Tom, you've heard what uh, Matt had to say there. It's huge news. Yeah, this guy changed the landscape. He was the first foreign owner and he started a spending race um, that we, we see continued to this day where 
the price of owning a football club and the amount of money you need to spend to compete at the top in England has, has gone up exponentially. And it was a brand which that paved the way for the, the American billionaires, the nation states, Chinese ownership, the, the Thai ownership of Leicester, the whole thing. And he, he redrew the, the, the football landscape. And of course, Chelsea won lots of trophies. I'm going to refrain from the rounds of applause that he's getting for being a great owner because <laughs> I think patently we have to be very careful about linking a team winning cups with the guy owning the club being some sort of great guy which of course is what sports washing's all about and just you know interested to see where this goes because let's just be clear a few days ago the same person was telling us he was turning Chelsea over to a trust that turned into a, win a window dressing announcement that didn't actually mean anything now we're being told he's going to sell and give the profits to Ukraine I'm just cautious. Um, first of all, who is he? Who is he actually going to give the money to? Is he going to give the money to anyone? Who does he define as victims of war? Who does he define as people affected by war? That could be, depending on what who you are, that could be a very different thing. Perhaps a Russian view might be that this goes to people in friendly areas, uh, they, and 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 you know it doesn't necessarily go to to people who've lost their homes. It could go to rebuilding roads and all that kind of stuff under a new Russian-controlled Ukraine. So I'm not I'm not rushing in. It might not, but I, I think there's been a bit of a um, unseemly rush of people falling over themselves to applaud him. I would really like to see the detail of this. And let's be let's remember as well, he's talking about giving the profits of the sale not the actual proceeds of the sale. He'll take his money back and then anything left over will be given to this as to be defined cause. So let's just hold back on that one. But clearly he exits English football, completely changed it. And who knows as well whether you'll you'll ever find out that detail, Johnny, because it was only yeah. a few days ago that he was meant to be brokering peace between Ukraine yeah. and Russia. Yeah. And we were asking how... Um, what's he doing? Where you know, and there are no answers to that at all. Nothing further than conf confirming reports that he was absolutely. And he still hasn't condemned the war, and he still hasn't spoken about the the, the, the aggression of his country in, in in another state. I wonder whether uh, at Chelsea, I don't think um, it will change much from what we saw at Kenilworth Road last night, where you've got the fans chanting his name and he'll be um, seen as almost the ultimate club legend because of what he did, because he was the owner that came in and um, transformed the club to a superpower and punched well, well above their weight even now because they've got a stadium which, which is not sort of fit for purpose to be a superpower doesn't generate enough money the club doesn't generate enough money to be a superpower and he invested continually to keep them at the top table so at Chelsea I don't think that'll change but outside that club over time the view of him will change I think and it'll influence how we look at other clubs as well I mean we've all We've already had it with Newcastle United. That's that was in, immediate with um, the the takeover there. But I think we will look at the investment very differently to how we have done in the past. Totally agree with what both of you said. Listening to the radio this morning, some of the reaction. I mean, loads of Chelsea fans calling and saying just how devastated they they are. And I can understand why fans who are very focused on the football might feel that way. Um, but over the years, there were reports and allegations of links to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. All of these are denied by Roman Abramovich. But if you, you didn't know, and you are one of those football fans who is just focused on results, most notably US Congress named Abramovich on a list of those who had flourished under Putin's regime. Uh, Alisher Uzmanov, also named on that list, we know he's a former shareholder at Arsenal. His companies have had their sponsorship deals at Everton paused. He, of course, denies any involvement as well. But I do think it's time that we sort of acknowledge this Abramovich wasn't this benevolent philanthropist who just loved a football club. I repeat, he denies all allegations against him. 
Those allegations include that he ran the financial affairs of Putin. Any allegations of money laundering, he also denies, but they have been put forth. And that he had also bought the club at the request of the Kremlin, he, of course, also denies that. They're not just strong allegations. These are, in terms of the wider scale of the world, geopolitics. I mean, those are huge accusations for anyone to have leveled against them. And obviously, the moment that sanctions, and I mentioned this with Matt, have the prospect of them have, have come, Roman Abramovich has decided to sell up and basically do, do a runner, if you like. Um, you know, he, he hasn't stayed to fight his innocence. He hasn't stayed to plead his case. Um, and you can read of that what you will. But I, I think the football fans that are sitting back and saying, what a great guy who brought us all of this success, need to ask themselves why he was doing it. Ultimately, for someone to put their hand in their pocket and say, here's a billion and a half pounds, which Chelsea were in debt to, to Roman Abramovich. I mean, that is a lot of money. I mean, you've got to love football a hell of a lot to be given a billion and a half pounds to a football club just so that you can see them win stuff. So again, Roman Abramovich denies all wrongdoing. Chelsea, of course, will deny all wrongdoing as well. And we should stress that. These have not been proven, these links. But um, it does... It does offer football that question and ask football that question, should they have done more to vet those coming in to become owners? And reports today, the Premier League is considering adding a human rights component to its owners and directors test as it conducts a review over the controversial regulation. This review part of a wide ranging reassessment of the league's governance. It comes as pressure um, grows to expand the criteria by which it assesses prospective owners. Of course, there was that criticism around Newcastle and their takeover from the um, PIF, the Saudi Investment Fund. Of course, we know the takeover Qatari-led investment at Manchester City previously as well. So, gentlemen, I mean, it sounds like after everything I've said that, it, that I should know your answers, but what do you think? Should football be preventing anyone who's even remotely linked as being an associate of a nation state or a government from from buying into the game or has that ship already sailed oh the ship the ship sailed that's what to do now to to try and redress things and, and provide a different future and i think until recent events i've kind of you know speaking to steve parish a lot gone along with the argument that football can't be any different to the the way um, Britain as a country does business, i.e. if um, British companies can be bought by pretty much anyone, then you know British football clubs being businesses within Britain, surely the same logic applies. And I, I can see that argument, but I think what, what, what events maybe emphasise is that British football clubs are not ordinary businesses they are this is an exceptional case because they're actually vessels that that are used on a world stage to build image and build pr and build power and it's not the same as buying a, a supermarket or a factory it, it it should be held to a different and a higher bar uh so i think i think going forward um it, it's it's absolutely right that the the uh, there's a much higher bar for buying a football club. I think anyone associated with a repressive regime shouldn't be anywhere near a football club. And the utopia, of course, is to have some kind of fan ownership of, of, of a certain sort, some sort of checks. I, th I don't think we can go back. I don't think we can go to there. I think that's too much. But maybe, um, maybe somewhere where um, we can um, have a greater say in who... Is, is is coming into football has to be has to be looked at has to be looked at because I talked about how Abramovich changed the the, um, the 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 game it will keep on changing this will keep on happening until there's there's, there's action taken to to redraw things that we will keep on seeing um, nations or or regimes or or people who want to airbrush a reputation looking at a football club thinking that's the cheapest and quickest way to get some good PR. I mean, look, the Saudi regime already getting Newcastle fans defending X, Y, and Z. I'm not saying all Newcastle fans, but you see some of it on social media. Absolutely, that boggles my mind that just because someone's bought your football club, you then start to try and defend unspeakable things that normally you would, you would, you would abhor, but they bought your football club, so actually I'm now going to try and see their respect. That's what sports watching is.
as I say, we need a higher bar for, for owning football clubs than, than in anything else almost in, in, in British business. I can only echo everything Johnny's just said, really. I, I entirely agree. No puns intended, by the way. No. Um, just so you know, <laughs> Tom is at, at the Financial Times football conference. He had to find a small room where he could uh, talk to us. And yes, it is a bit echoey. He's not stuck in a toilet cubicle. <laughs> I know you've been thinking that for the last 10 minutes. Sorry, go ahead, Tom. The, the things I do for the podcast to be on this podcast sat in doorways and it was interesting as well Hugh you, you were listing earlier about um, the the denials so you, you listing the allegations against Roman Abramovich and everything he denies um, each of them which of course come from a spokesperson these denials over he, he has owned that club for 19 years and how many times have we heard from him? Uh, there was an interview, I think it was in Forbes last year um, with him, but it, it didn't really reference to too much. And of course, because of what he did for the club, because of the money he invested, people didn't question it. He didn't get the nickname of sort of silent Stan in, in the way that Cronky got to Arsenal. But then you have at Newcastle, Amanda Stavely, who is is the face, pretty much the face of that takeover, despite only owning ten um, percent, and that's the important part. It's you know to to have the the owners and directors test of, to be fit and proper, but but also for us to actually know who these people are and, and who's running it and what their background is, because as Johnny said, the bar is has been far far too low. No, I totally agree with you. I, I, I do wonder, look, I mentioned the Chelsea fans, you know, how bad or good this is for them. I guess time will tell in p- particular for the, the new owners. How, but how worried should they feel, Tom? That's the thing. You said, Hugh, about the, the person you heard on the radio almost in tears. If, if that's over Roman Abramovich, then I don't understand. If it's over the uncertainty of the future of the club, then I totally understand it because Chelsea are not, um, they're they're a hugely uh, attractive asset to be something that those people who have super yachts bigger than football stadiums uh, can show off and boast about on in their Monaco apartments and uh, on their private jets. But as an actual entity and a, and a money-making, potential for money-making entity, it's really not that attractive because it's got this unique situation of the Chelsea pitch owners um, where they have a – it was started by Ken Bates and they have – ownership of, of that, that that green thing in the middle of the stadium. They have ownership of it. So you're asking someone to come in and spend three billion pounds on the club and be, be a tenant to the football pitch. And of course, the stadium is probably one of the key areas that, that makes it unattractive because 40,000 seats isn't a big money maker but also it's there's there's really nowhere to go because if they try and move out of Chelsea then they have to surrender the naming rights and the redevelopment of that ground it was it was a billion pounds um to to redevelop it what what was that four years ago five years ago how much is that now um, that would have absolutely shot up. And you've also got to start that whole process again. You've got to get the mayor on side. You've got to get um, neighbours who took Chelsea to court over right of light. You've got to get the, the, the all the businesses round there on side. It, it is a massive project. Yeah. What do you think, Johnny? What, what's the future hold for these Chelsea fans and the club as a whole now? Uh, one of the key things, I guess, is how quickly this club could be sold and and whether it means they might run into the wrong sort of owner because we're hearing seven days. I mean, these things usually take a long, long time. Um, Abramovich might want this money ASAP. One of the things when you look at the EFL and the history of bad ownership there, one of the issues they have is a cycle where somebody needs to try and sell the club quickly. A disgraced owner sells the club quickly 
there's not enough scrutiny. The person that buys it comes in and turns out to be just as bad or even worse. And this could be played out in a, it, it, on a bigger stage. But it strikes me as it's not a very good time to sell football clubs at the moment. The investment has sort of, or the, the potential investors, as far as I can see, have kind of dried up. And the prices just got so high. I mean, nobody's bought a football club for three billion pounds. You know, the, the, this would be the first of the the super clubs to be sold. So this is uncharted territory. I think it's an uncertain future for Chelsea because the one thing that's glued them together in 19 years, and it hasn't been managers, let's face it, it's been Roman Abramovich and it's been his money and it's been the spending on transfers and investment in youth players, I suppose, those two things together that have been the continuity that will disappear. So there's there's a lot that's uncertain. And then as Tom rightly says, there's the there's the, the there's the pitch question. And I don't know. <laughs> as a Chelsea fan, maybe on that score, it, it must feel a bit it must feel a bit worrying, a bit frightening. I understand there's affection for someone that's brought them success, but surely it's better. Bigger picture is surely it's better that Vladimir Putin's close uh, associate and that, you know, we can say is not owning a football club anymore. Allegedly. And he denies all wrongdoing, of course. But yes, listen, there will be much more coverage on this on the game podcast in the coming weeks, I'm sure. At the moment, though, check it out in the Times today or uh, go on the app and read some of it. Matt Dickinson in particular doing some great coverage and and. Um, storytelling regarding Roman Abramovich's impending Chelsea departure in the Times right now, of course. It is the times.co.uk forward slash the game if you want to subscribe. And of course, make sure you leave us a review as well. More still to come. We're going to talk about the Manchester Derby next as well as some incredible results in the history of football. You'll, you'll find out more on that later. Stay with us. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Manchester United go into the derby against Manchester City in the Premier League this weekend. A full 19 points behind their rivals in the table. It all takes place at the Etihad on Sunday. Paul Hurst joins us uh, on the game podcast. Uh, Listen, it's an important game for Manchester City. If you look at some of the big games coming up for them, this will be a huge game in the title run-in. But I don't think... Manchester United stand much of a chance, although you'll tell me, Hursty, that these derby matches have been hard to predict. 
Yes, they have. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the look at the the strength of the two squads, you know, the quality of the manager, you know, the structure of the club, you know, the overall plan of of both clubs. Then City are streets ahead of United in in each of those departments. But quite recently, they've um, they've struggled to beat United uh, at the Etihad. Strangely enough, they've had more success at Old Trafford recently. So you know that'll be in United's minds going in there. But certainly in terms of the you know the, the current form and the, the overall feeling. Of, of both clubs, you'd put you know you put your money on, on City winning. I mean, they are you know really big odds-on favourites for a reason. So yeah, they'll be they'll be confident of, of winning on Sunday. How key is the game then in the run-in for you, City facing trips to Burnley and Palace before that huge game against Liverpool in terms of the Premier League? That is. Yeah, well, they've they've got quite a comfortable cushion, haven't they? At the top of the, the league, it's, it's six points. I know Liverpool have got a game in hand, but as long as they don't lose to Liverpool at home, even if Liverpool win their match in hand, they'll still be they'll still be pretty comfortable at the top. And I just get get the impression at the moment that I know the City lost to Spurs the other week, but they're in that mode at the moment where they just they just beat teams, you know, one nil, two nil, two one. They just eke out results, and at this stage of the season, yeah, if they're leading the table, if, you know, they don't get caught. So They've gone on so many long runs under Guardiola that I wouldn't be surprised if they went unbeaten from, from now until the end of the season. And that should be enough for them to win it. You've destroyed my narrative, Hursty. That <laughs> Sorry. The city, of, city of hitting a lull uh, was going to be my next question. <laughs> I didn't think their performances against Spurs, obviously beaten 3-2 in that game, fortunate in the end to, to get out with a, uh, a win against Everton. It was a fortunate goal. And of course, the apology going to Everton on what should have been a handball from Rodri at the end of the game as well. That, that's not the brilliant high bar that we've come to expect from City. No, but they're, they're so good in terms of the quality of the squad that even if they hit five or six out of 10, they're going to beat most teams in the league, aren't they? They've not really, you know, sporting Lisbon aside and or sporting Club de Portugal, if I want to be totally correct, aside, they've not really blown teams away recently I know they've had beat Norwich but you know that's uh, not too difficult but it's getting to that stage where they're winning by one goal or two goals and you know that's you know they Man United used to that all the time when they won championships didn't they just towards the end of the season just to eat results and you know not not play to their best I mean like I said because they are so got, got so much quality in the squad they don't have to play you know 10 out of 10 every week to to win a match they you know they're that good Tom, what do you think about the significance of the Manchester derby this weekend? Because I, I think United fans, of course, will want to scupper. Well, I say they'll want to scupper City's run towards the title. Of course, they'll only open the door for Liverpool. So it's a lose-lose situation in many ways. They've been in this situation many times, actually, haven't they? And Hugh, you, you can see you grimacing saying that as well. <laughs> I think it's possibly it's it's um, it's us desperate for to have a title race, really, isn't it? So um, uh, I think most people looking on would definitely want to to see that happen um, because we got a, a glimmer of it with the Tottenham result last week. But as Paul said, I mean, this season possibly even more than any other season before you just see how they're a, a machine that even when key components are missing they just seem to ease through and they just tend to control games as well which um which man united definitely haven't done in i was going to say in recent weeks but in 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 recent years <laughs> um it's been really turbulent and you know the the last win was was leeds and and, and brighton and and you look at there's benefits from from each game that they've had you just don't know with a game like this United have done it before. We would definitely welcome a surprise for the for the narrative. Yeah, I wouldn't in particular in, in an individual basis, but I know exactly what you're talking about, Tom. I, I fear once again that Manchester United will barely put their foot on the ball in this game and they will be chasing shadows for much of it. And there have been far too many of those Manchester derbies in the last few years. I pray for an upturn in form from Manchester United. How exactly they'll get something out of this game, I'm not quite sure because it will be very difficult, in particular if they stick with the current system. Look, let's talk about Manchester United. There are a few bits of news going on there, Paul. Paul Ballas writing in the Times today that the Manchester United squad have grown tired of Harry Maguire's form, their captain, of course, saying that he falls beneath the required standards of a United player, in their opinion. What your thoughts on that story? It's very interesting, isn't it? And um, Paul's got a lot of very good sources at City uh, and United. Um, so I'd, I'd definitely trust him, trust what he's writing. And 
I can understand why some players would be annoyed with his performances because they've they've not been up to scratch. He played very well in January against West Ham United. He had Antonio, uh, he marked Antonio out of the game in, in that match. But other than that, he's really struggled this season. And there's, there's sometimes when he's got the ball at his feet, that there's a there's a real nervousness in the crowd, you know, about what he's going to do. It's it's so strange because he used to be really good with his feet. You know, he's really good passer of the ball, but. There seems to be a, a bit of an edge to his performances at the moment. It is, it is a concern for United. I, th- I personally think that they look better when Lindelof and Varane play together. I think obviously Lindelof's not as good at heading the ball, but that's not a that's not going to be a problem against City, is it? Because they've they've only got Rodri, who's a, a, a tall a tall player in their team. So Lindelof's a lot quicker. The other side to this is obviously that you know those players saying. Maguire's not up to scratch. You know, they have to look at themselves as well because he's not the only one, is he? I mean, you look at that squad and, you know, how many of them are really performing well at the moment? You probably pick Ilanga, Sancho, and then, you know, you're struggling, aren't you? De Gea, obviously. But the rest of them are so up and down and have been all season that, you know, I can see why this irritates fans when when stories like this come out. They are true. You know, there, there is some... Uh, there's a lot of substance behind it, but there's a you know a sense among the fan base that you know the players sh- should look at themselves and stop stop having a go at each other and stop you know gossiping and just actually start playing together as a team and trying to win some matches because they're they're month ahead. You know this these next few matches are really going to be pivotal in deciding whether they are going to be in the top four. They could they could easily get to the next international break at the end of March and be out of the race for top four. They could be, you know, sixth or seventh because they've got City, then they've got um, Tottenham, and then they've got um, Liverpool away and the second leg against Atletico Madrid. So it's a tough run of fixtures and it, it could break them if they're not careful. I was just laughing when Hersley said, it's so strange it used to be really good. You could say that of pretty much every player at Manchester United and every manager that they've had in the last seven or eight years. Is there another club where the players give us a running commentary through the media of how they feel about the manager and how they feel about teammates? It's absolutely absurd. It's a, it, it speaks to me of a an, an entitled dressing room which doesn't take responsibility and wants to talk about other people and as Paul said there's a lot of guys in that dressing that need to look at their own performances first when it comes to Maguire uh, he's had a bad season really bad season and and it may be that that, that Varane and Lindelof are a better combination I think you know Varane's the best player among them and Lindelof defends on the front foot he gets higher up the pitch and engages the opposition in a higher position, which is what Ralph Rangnick needs. When you've got Maguire and Varane, you've got two guys that want to drop off. So that doesn't really that doesn't really work. So I can see the logic of, of going with Varane and Lindelof. What I I just uh, shake my head again at United and and the fact that this gets you know communicated to uh, agents and and then that's seen as something to communicate to us. It's great for us for stories, but this is not how a proper dressing room functions um on on united i just i'm a bit cautious about saying this is going to be a disastrous period simply because united have been poor under ranyuk against the 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 low block lesser teams that drop off and ask them to make the play but they've been a bit better against those that have come out and attacked them because it's allowed them to counter press a little bit and it's allowed them to I suppose attack quickly and directly, which is what he likes. Um, I just want to. I, I wonder if United will be a little bit better against these teams, the dominant teams against Liverpool and, and City, than they look against Watford under Ranić. I, I don't know. They have only lost one league game under him. It, it, it's been turgid. It's not been good enough, but it hasn't been in the territory of disaster yet for me. So this will make them or break them. But I'm not going into this period saying that they're going to get a comeuppance. They might actually fare a little bit better, like they did under Solskjaer, actually, against these oppositions than than against the the, the fodder, shall we say. Two wins in the past seven in all competitions, though, uh, facing Manchester City and then Spurs in the Premier League, Atletico Madrid at home, then it's Leicester. I mean, it will be, it could be defining in terms of the, the top four race. Aside from the football, Tom, 
clearly from all of these stories, there needs to be a bit of a cultural reset at Manchester United. I'm going to speak about John Murto, their director of football in a moment with Paul and what he's been saying. Do you think we will see some sort of overhaul, some sort of reset at Manchester United anytime soon? Because it's clear there need to be changes. I really wanted to hear Paul's thoughts on Carlo Angelotti because um, Paul was writing this week about the, the, his name being thrown into the mix as, as a potential manager and we know from his time at Chelsea what, what a brilliant, excellent manager he, he can be and that he brings a kind of calmness to, to a club and which is desperately in need at, at United right now. But does it sort of compare in the same way as um, Eric Ten Hag and Pochettino? It, it just, again, struck me as a club that is in a moment of scattergun and not really sure where it wants to go. But what did you actually think of the idea, Paul? I think it, certainly in terms of Ancelotti, I'd, I agree with you. I think he's, he would be a very calming influence. Um, and, you know, they need to unify that dressing room as well, don't they? But I think he's seen as very much a, a kind of a backup option. You know, if they don't get one of the one of the top options like like Pochettino, Ted Hag um, or Luis Enrique, that they'd, they'd look at him. I mean, the whole manager search just... It just shows where United are at in terms of their reputation in in European football at the moment, doesn't it? They sacked Solskjaer in November, and you know, and if you know, I know we didn't have this uh, this situation under Ferguson, but at that time, United when Ferguson was in charge, you know, their standard was so high that if that Man United job became available in November in mid-season, you would get every manager in the world, or well, you know, certainly the the best ones, willing to jump ship from their own positions to take that job at Man United. But now they've they've fudged it a little bit, got someone in until the end of the season who, you know, and I, I agree with Johnny that he's he's not been a total disaster. He has kind of steadied the the ship in terms of results. But he's not gonna be there long term, is he? And I just think they don't need someone for two years or eighteen months or uh, even three years needs someone there for you know five, six, seven years. And it's you know come back to City again. You know Pep's been there. This is his sixth season. And they're so kind of calm as a club and well structured. And you know we've got we know the way that they play. And you know they've obviously won very many trophies as well. So I know chopping and changing managers does work for some clubs. You know like Chelsea um, in recent years, but. United, what they need now is someone not for two years. It is you know a long term six, seven, eight year manager. You know, I don't think Ancelotti is going to be that person, is he? I mean, listen, I'm stunned that Manchester United. When you talk about the fact they sat their manager in November, I mean, in in managerial sacking terms, that's quite early in the season. And you're usually able to get a replacement in before the end of, of, of that campaign, um, particularly if you're a club the size of Manchester United offering the salary for the role that Manchester United will no doubt offer. So it did reek of having absolutely zero plan. I'm amazed, by the way, that they didn't have a backup plan for Solskjaer for years, given the results and the, the way things had gone. I know, Johnny, you'll disagree with me on that. Uh, but the way <laughs> things had gone under Solskjaer for quite some time. United's football director, John Murto, who is pretty much new to this specific role, said a thorough process has started to recruit the new manager with the objective to get us back challenging for those domestic and European titles. Which again, for me is, uh, listen, it always reeks of a little bit of delusion. Like, I always think that clubs now need to be understanding of where they sit. Yes, of course, that is the long-term goal. And Manchester United, with the money that they spend and the players that they should be able to attract, should have that as their goal, absolutely. But actually, they do need to appoint a manager that's about the next step. And the next step is, you know, to be regularly in that Champions League, which Solskjaer had pretty much got them to, to maybe pick up some cups, to build in the long term to being a, a team that can challenge for the title before you then think about going on and winning the title. And then from winning the title, you can think about maybe being the best team in Europe. And whoever gets this job next may not be the person that achieves that goal, but they can be a big part of taking the, the next step towards it. Uh, you know, Pochettino, I, I, it's, it, I'm sure we're going to talk about this all summer. Mauricio Pochettino, Carlo Ancelotti's now in the conversation, Eric Ten Hag. I mean, by now, we should have an idea who Manchester United want. Surely, Paul, surely. Because all of this for me, you know, I, I mentioned the delusion, but there's also a bit of a lack of imagination here. I mean, they're out there. They're obvious. Go and get one. 
Yeah, and I, I think I get your point, but I think they've been waiting till Ed Woodward kind of left to kind of really start this this process. Um, you know, because you know he was he was in, in place until February first, so you know that was natural. Kind of he was in charge of the football club till then, so you know there was a break after that, and now they started, you know, started looking at you know joining a proper shortlist, etc., and doing their kind of doing their research into into uh, just just going back on to your, to your main point, you know, about John Murta's comments about saying we want to win European titles again. I mean, problem with the United is they basically keep telling everyone that they're the biggest club in the world. You know, we've got. 1.1 billion fans and you know we are the greatest etc so you can't do that and then at the same time say oh yes we want someone who can sort of build for a couple of years maybe get us into the top four they've set kind of such high they've put themselves on such a high pedestal that they they can't be seen to climb down from that now so they've got to project that image of them being a real european superpower when the reality is, uh, in terms of their football, they're not, are they? They're in the second tier at the moment of European superpowers. You know, you, you look at teams like Bayern Munich, Chelsea obviously won, won the Champions League last year. They, they are the real top European teams at the moment. They're, and United aren't, you know, they're in that kind of second bracket, aren't they? They're not a, you wouldn't, you wouldn't consider them a serious contender for the Champions League this season. Finally, Paul, Ralph Rannick. What does it mean for him, this managerial search? Where's his role within it? Will he be doing this consultancy for two years from the end of the season, um, depending on who the, the new manager is? And what does it mean if, if he gets play, outplayed by Manchester City and Pep Guardiola? Will people be surprised? Will he face criticism? Because at the moment, this supply teacher role is, is basically becoming it's almost more and more meaningless as weeks go by. It's really just a custodian position. It doesn't feel like the pressure and expectation is there. Maybe that's just my reading of it. Yeah, in, in some ways, I do feel sympathy for Ragnick because he's he's been told that he's there until the end of the season. And if you've got these players who are, you know, going behind each other's backs and sniping, etc., they're probably not going to have the, the respect for him that he deserves because he's, you know, he's just, like you say, a supply teacher, isn't he, until the end of the season, which is which is not right at all. He should be respected. He will get criticised this weekend if they lose, but to be honest, the, the players are playing, you're not really doing what he asks of them so i mean that the game against um the game against watford at the weekend he said um uh, ralph said you know if, if our, our job as coaches is to make sure that the team create chances and i agree with that and they they did they created you know loads of chances but they just couldn't score so uh, you know that's that is the real problem with the united at the moment it's it's you know it's the guy up front, isn't it? Yeah, you know, he he, can't, he just he scored once in his last ten matches. He's completely devoid of confidence, it seems, and he shouldn't be in the team. But Ragnick's got no backup to Ronaldo because Cavani's always injured. Johnny, Johnny, <laughs> Johnny, you can't make faces like that and not not speak. Ragnick's lost one game. He's lost one game, and as Paul absolutely correctly says. They're creating tons of chances and the guy up front who's scored 800 career goals can't put them away at the moment. It, it, it's be, Obviously, it's bizarre having the supply teacher manager, but this has not been a disaster. I think Ranick's doing his best. He's doing an okay job. I, I'm looking at this thinking, you know what? I, I don't think Ralph Ranick is useless as a result of what I've seen on the pitch. I just think United are in a, in, in a mess as a football club. But I'd keep Ranick in that consultancy role He's a brilliant builder of football clubs. Give him recruitment. Give him a lot of role in terms of restructuring the club and bring in a coach that fits with what he does. I said a bit whimsically earlier in this season that the next United manager will be Thomas Tuchel, but maybe they should actually make a serious effort to do that. To be honest, I'd be quite happy with that, but that's another name on the list for us to consider. <laughs> Paul Hurst, appreciate you joining us on the Game Podcast. I'm sure we'll probably speak on Monday, so enjoy the game at the Etihad, and fingers crossed from, from my perspective, it goes well for United. I don't care, City fans, stop listening now if you don't like it, all right? Um, listen, we'll be rivals for the weekend. We'll all be friends again on Monday, I'm sure. Finally, on the Game Podcast, there's another incredible article by Bill Edgar you can read in the Times right now. In English Football League history, since 1888, there have been 203,329 games with 95 different scorelines, which 
Bill has painstakingly laid out for you in an entirely entertaining way, believe me. Uh, Ten of those results have appeared on just one occasion, including 11-3, 13-4, and 3-8. Let me read you one of the examples. I'll take you back to December the 21st, 1957 in the second tier. It finished Charlton Athletic 7, Huddersfield Town 6. This is the only match in which a team has scored six goals and lost. Charlton reduced to 10 men after a quarter of an hour because of an injury to Derek Ufton. They fell 5-1 behind in the 62nd minute, but went 6-5 up when Johnny Summers scored his fifth goal of the game. Huddersfield equalised. Buck Ryan then struck in the 89th minute for the winner. And just three years later at the same venue, Charlton drew six all with Middlesbrough, which is one of only two such scorelines. So there you go. You get a gist of what Bill has laid out. Um, listen, we can't take you as far back as 1957 personally, but I did ask, want to ask the gentleman um, about the more remarkable scorelines they have witnessed. Uh, Johnny, I'll start with you. The, the one that springs to mind uh, was Newcastle 4, Arsenal 4 at St. James's Park about 10 years ago. I, I reported on the game. I mean, there's been a few 4-4 draws in the Premier League. There was a famous um, Liverpool-Arsenal one and there was Man United versus Everton, the Fellaini game, I think. But but th- this game at St. James's Park was ludicrous. I mean, it was Arsenal... You know that some days under Wenger they could just be sublime. Late, you know, late Wenger, not 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 you know classic Wenger, but later Wenger. And this was the team of Van Persie and Fabregas and and Rosicky and Abue and and they were just they were unbelievable. And they were four nil up after twenty five minutes, four nil going on eight nil. Uh, Newcastle were were rubbish um, and being destroyed in front of their own fans. And at that point, if you'd, if you'd offered any money on anything other than a heavy Arsenal win, it would have been impossible to, you know, to, 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 to resist that kind of bet. And, and it was the way the game turned just said so much about, about football, I suppose. I mean, Joey Barton became this kind of like, you know, the thing he tried to do against Man City in the game when Man City won the league at last, but he just basically tried to take bodies with him and annoy everyone so much that he... Somehow got QPR a result. He kind of did try to do the same thing for Newcastle. He just started, you know, sniping at Arsenal players, kicking them, irritating them, and it started to work. And Arsenal's kind of beautiful football started to unravel a little bit. They, sc- I think, Newcastle scored. Joey Barton got two penalties. He scored two penalties in the second half, and then they got two late goals. Leon Best and Czech Tioti, the late Czech Tioti, fired in an unbelievable sort of strike from about thirty yards. And you had St James's Park at full voice, just enjoying another Arsenal collapse. And it said everything about that that sort of beautiful but fragile Wenger team, and about how football can be about more than uh, you know. <laughs> If football can just come down to kind of small human elements, i.e. Joey Barton running around annoying a team and making them lose their cool, it's a remarkable game and actually great fun to report on because it was such a sort of such a ridiculous story. Mm, but that rewrite must have been difficult right at the end. Come on now. <laughs> come well, on we now. Have, we, we didn't have digital in those days, Hugh, so you got a bit more time. Oh, lovely, lovely. Uh, Tom, what about you? Mine also includes Arsenal, actually. Um, but it sort of it, it goes the, the other way slightly. Um, it's 2012, down the road from me at the, um, the Select Car Leasing Stadium, then known as the Basic <laughs> Stadium. What a game, honestly. What a game that was. Yes, yeah. 4-0 up, Reading, newly promoted Reading after 35 minutes. I think it was the season before the United, uh, that Arsenal had lost 8-2 at, at United. And you, you, ex, you know, not you expected that result, but it was, it was Man United. It was Fergie's Man United. Whereas this, you know, Jason Roberts, Mikel Leisurewood, Noel Hunt, and Reading are 4-0 up after 35 minutes. I mean, it's just unbelievable stuff it was it's the kind of thing where you you check would it have been teletext back then maybe not so not in 2012 but you, you check and see a score like that and think there's think there's a massive issue and of course i think they got a goal back just before half time arsenal and end up winning 7 
five. I mean, it just an unbelievable game. I would have loved to have looked back and saw the ratings. I'm sorry, my preparation isn't, isn't quite <laughs> up to scratch, but the ratings from whoever reported on that game must have been incredible. Um, and incredibly, it wasn't, it, it wasn't the first time that Reading had actually been beaten 7-5. The same thing had happened against Doncaster Rovers in 1982. So there's, there is a little bit of preparation for you. <laughs> I'm just reading the match report. Um, and the first thing it says is, it's not the first time Reading have been beaten 7-5. The Royals, despite four goals from Kerry Dixon, lost by the same scoreline at third division opponents Doncaster Rovers in September of 1982, which um, Bill Edgar, I'm sure, will be proud of me for managing to Google in that short space of time. Make sure you check out Bill's article right now on the Times app, of course. Gentlemen, thank you for being with me. Jonathan Northcroft, Tom Roddy, Matt Lawton, Paul Hurst as well, who we spoke to a little bit earlier on. Thank you all for listening as well. Remember, if you sign up today to the Times and the Sunday Times, you will get yourself one month free. Check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Thank you once again for listening. We will see you on Monday, where we'll be joined for the first time by Tony Cascarino, the former uh, Chelsea Celtic striker as well, will be with us on the game podcast. Uh, I think every fortnight from here on out, he'll be with us on Monday. We'll see you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.